Open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Let me remind you of this morning's sermon. That we have been delivered from the law wherein we were held and which dominated us and condemned us. We've been delivered to be married to Christ and to bear fruit unto God. And the fruit that we will spend a little while talking about right now is our relationships, primarily our relationships with our children and our parents, the family relationship, and the relationship of husband and wife. And I would just like to share a few things that the Lord has convicted me to give to you. I take you back to Malachi chapter 2, though we were there last Lord's Day, because this is what I believe, that if a person fears God, verses like this should provoke you to do what you already know you ought to do. It is usual for us that we do not need to learn new things. We need to make a new commitment to do the old things that we're not doing. That is usually the case. It's usually what a coach has to tell a football team at halftime, that if they would go back out and do the basics better, they could do a better job in the second half. And when we come to the Word of God, it is not hearing some new secret formula for a happy family, for being a good parent, being a good child, being a good husband or wife. It's being reminded of how important it is to God, and with our spirits made ready, hopefully, by all that we've done so far, we humble ourselves before Scripture and say to ourselves, Self, you have been compromising and cheating, and you are not applying yourself with all the zeal that a truly godly man or a godly woman would apply themselves with. So let's take the reminder from the pastor who's preaching very simply on this point, And Holy Spirit, convict me and empower me to go do what I already know I ought to do, but I'm letting slide. That's usually the case. We don't need new things. We need renewed commitment to do the old things. I bring you to Malachi chapter 2 because it tells us here that the Lord views his altar in verse 13 And he saw it covered with the tears of Jewish women because of their treacherous husbands who were marrying other wives, in fact, pagan wives. The verse, this have ye done again, committing an abomination of treachery described in verses 11 and 12. This have ye done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering any more, or receiveth it with good will at your hand. I read this to you last Lord's Day, and I'm fully aware of that. I'm fully aware that I don't have nearly enough time for what I want to give you. But it is verses like this, if you fear God, should cause you to tremble, that if you are mistreating your spouse in either direction, husband or wife, mistreating parents or children, There's a God in heaven that measures his altar. And when a spouse comes to his altar, unhappy, hurt, crying, crying out, weeping with tears, God sees that hurt spouse or hurt parent or hurt child and takes recognition of it. That ought to cause us to tremble. So we turn the page to chapter 4, which hopefully many of you read last evening as part of your preparation. The last two verses of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. In Malachi 2, it was the marriage relationship. Malachi 4, parents to children, or fathers to children. Who is Elijah the prophet? John the Baptist. What's the great and dreadful day of the Lord? Destruction of Jerusalem. John the Baptist came and warned the nation of what was going to happen to them if they didn't repent. Some repented, many didn't. But the relationship, you know, in this passage it doesn't say 
He's going to stop the idolaters. He's going to stop the adulterers. He's going to stop the sorcerers. He's going to stop the drunkards. He's going to stop the liars. It doesn't say those things. It says he is going to come to get families back together. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Luke chapter 1. I'm repeating verses from last Lord's Day. Those that fear God just need to be reminded from God's Word of what they ought to be doing. And I'll try to give you a few ideas on being more zealous toward it, but let's hear what God has to say. This is Zacharias writing about his son John the Baptist in verse 15 of Luke 1. Zacharias is hearing the words from the angel about his son. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. A people prepared for the Lord is a people that have their family relationships the best. I am not making this emphasis, and I know I'm repeating the verses, but Malachi 2 was the prayers of a wife. Malachi 4 was the threat of a curse if fathers and children are not united. Luke 1 is the same if you want to be a people prepared for the Lord. And I trust that everyone here, especially if you have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, you want to be a people prepared for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the the issue that was stated about John the Baptist's ministry was family. Family. Parents and children. One more. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Another address to husbands. 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, that is, their wives, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. A messed up marriage, where a husband is not dwelling with his wife according to knowledge, where he's not showing her honor according to her weakness and according to the equality that she has with him in things spiritual, hinders prayers. Now let me repeat with four items. We have tears being observed by God, and he calls it treachery and an abomination in Malachi 2. We have a curse threatened in Malachi 4. We have a people prepared for the Lord in Luke 1. And we have prayers hindered here in 1 Peter 3. All of those passages are, family isn't as important to you as it ought to be, and you haven't done everything in your power, in your reasonable power, to have a proper marriage and a proper relationship with your children or your parents. So let's consider a few things. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6 with me. Ephesians chapter 6. May I remind you of a few little rules about relationships. God chose the offices. The Almighty God of Heaven, Jehovah. Remember, J-H-V-H pointed up with vowels from Adonai and Elohim. That God. Jehovah chose the offices that exist in this world. God chose to create us as helpless infants rather than a grown Adam or Eve. Can he make a grown man like that? Adam. Can he make a grown woman like Eve? He didn't choose that. He chose to create us little helpless infants. And we come into this world belonging to two parents. He made that choice. He made that arrangement. I'm talking about the office the office of parent and child. God ordained families for companionship, nurturing, training, and worship together, all of which are practiced in the Bible. Husbands over wives and parents over children is not an option, nor is it vague in the Bible. My point here, a simple rule for relationships. God chose the offices. The first way to happiness in relationship is to admit God chose the office. If I'm a wife, I realize God made me a woman. 
I am now married, therefore I am in the office of a wife, and I am to submit, obey, love, and reverence my husband in the office God gave him. If I'm a child, I realize I came into this world helpless. If my mommy and daddy had just left me alone for a couple of days, I would have died. But they took care of me repeatedly throughout every day, then for many days, then for many years. And God created that arrangement. The office of parent is a Jehovah-ordained institution. We didn't evolve into this. You can't take it or leave it. It's very important. Jehovah arranged it. He could have made all of us pop into existence at the ripe old age of 30 and live to be 3,000. He chose exactly what we experience. And that is the first rule of a good relationship is to acknowledge what God has done. Now let me add to that. Not only did God choose the offices, but God chose the persons in the office. My children... I mean all the children in this assembly, and I'm a child in this assembly. You were not asked at all about your parents, genetically or practically. You weren't asked at all about your parents. You didn't even know who your parents were intelligently until after several years of belonging to them, where they had to use all their intelligence to keep you from doing some very nasty and gross things. This is the second rule of a relationship. The persons in it, God chose. You have enormous consequences. Your parents have enormous consequences on your entire life. God made the choice. And he didn't ask you, and he didn't ask them. You say, well, I wish he had chosen a better set of parents for me. That's what they're thinking about you. So let's just not worry about all that stuff. Let's realize God made this choice. Not only did he ordain the office, but he ordained the person in the office. Right. Now that is, that is sovereign power. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we are thinking about events like that. The generation in which you were born, and I've been through all this before, the intelligence of your parents, the gene package you get, and I don't mean Levi genes, I mean the gene package is by the design of God. And we, we submit ourselves to it, not only to, to the office of parent, but to the persons God put there. He chose them. He specifically chose them with infinite intelligence. Amen. Not partial. He wasn't in a hurry because there's 6.8 billion people on earth. 68 billion people on earth would not slow down his mental faculties. Right. He specifically chose your parents for you. They are the best set of parents for you in the entire history of the human race. That is how much I believe in the sovereignty of God. That is how much I believe in the whole Bible. That's how much I believe Romans 13. It says the powers that be are ordained of God. Even if that's a pagan Roman Caesar, and it's Paul writing to Romans to submit, pay taxes, and to give honor to whom honor is due. Children, your parents, your dad, your mom, God picked, personally, hand-selected to be the very best for what you need. But I see some parents that are more spiritually minded. God overlooked that? I see some parents that are happier. I see some parents that make more money. God knew all those factors and millions beyond your comprehension when he chose your parents. They are perfect for you if you will respond to your parents the way the Bible tells you to. If you will respond to your parents the way the Bible tells you to, in your parents' frailties and faults, is the very school that will make you the better Christian and the better man or woman that you should be. He is infinite in intelligence. We cannot number up his ways. They are beyond our comprehension. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. So my second rule for you today is to remember that God chose the persons in the offices that are over you. Now if you think that you chose your spouse, God chose your spouse for you. No, 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 Pastor. We don't believe in God-arranged marriages. I 
I was out looking for a wife. And I found a woman and I married her, so it was my choice. Oh, no, young man or older man. No, no, no. First of all, God lets you be born a man. God lets you grow up and God kept you from marrying anyone else until you met so-and-so that you made a choice to marry. Even if you made a wrong choice, a poor choice, a foolish choice, even a sinful choice by marrying someone out of the Lord, God still made the choice for you by arranging the circumstances that you would be at a PQA quiz contest and that you would see each other and there'd be some attraction between the two of you quizzing stars back there who now have stars in their eyes. I'm talking about Mark and Esther Crosby in case anyone's missing. But they didn't choose each other. God made the choice. God cut off everyone for Mark leading up to Esther. God cut off everyone for Esther leading up to Mark. God protected Esther in so many close calls and automobiles in order for her to live long enough for Mark to marry her. And I could add this and multiply this and square it infinitely. God made the choice of your spouse. And don't you think that you'd made it so that you can relieve yourself of some of the responsibilities towards your spouse? God arranged the circumstances of your life for your spouse. And if you will respond to your spouse the way God teaches you to, it will be the best for you. You say, but I can see happier wives that are more submissive and more cheerful than mine. I believe in the infinite wisdom of a father in heaven that is so superior to all of us as fathers that he is able to see that and he's going to perfect you faster at a more aggressive pace to a higher level by the wife you have than someone else's wife. I just believe that totally from the word of God that everywhere I read the office and the person in the office is put there by God. I'm not turning you anywhere. I don't need to. You should already know these things. I've taught them so many times. Submission is essential for authority to exist. How does any authority sphere exist? How does a football team exist? The players do what the coach tells them to. How does a military exist? The soldiers do what the captain or general tells them to do. How does a family exist happily? The wife and the children do what the father tells them to do, or the children do what both tell them to do. Submission is necessary for authority to work properly. Authority cannot exist by sheer terror. It only exists temporarily, and it only exists externally. It doesn't exist internally. An expression I've used twice in the last couple of months is, all governments are popular, meaning the people submit to them by choice. Because when government gets onerous, they will no longer submit. And then we have anarchy. Then we have ten tribes leaving Rehoboam because they will not submit to his onerous taxation that his father had initiated over Israel. God has stated his mind about this matter, so we submit in holy fear. When the Bible says wives, submit. Wives should submit. When it says children, obey. Children should obey. When it says children, honor. Children should honor. That's what makes it work. That's what makes a home happy. Whenever we find authority in the Bible, it starts out with those under authority. When we, when we run upon marriage in the Bible, it says wives, and it addresses them for three verses, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, because it is their submission that is necessary to a marriage. Then 5, 25 through 31 is about the husband's love of his wife. Now, the husband's love of a wife is not necessary to a marriage. It's necessary to a happy marriage. Submission is necessary for the marriage to even go anywhere. It's a husband's love that enhances it. Now, a husband is commanded. It's not a, it's not a take it or leave it matter for the husband. But the reason that the wife comes first is because that is necessary for it to get started. Boys join the military by going down and volunteering. How many times does the military let them volunteer for things after that? Do they get to volunteer that they would like to go home three weeks into boot camp? No, because once you grant authority to the military figure, you are then bound and you have given him the leave or the permission to use his authority to force you to obey from that point on. You can go get any job you want. 
But once you get that job, guess what? He's your boss, and he can tell you when, where, what, and how. And wife, you didn't have to say, I do. But once you say, I do, you've told your husband, use whatever it takes, hopefully within the parameters of God's Word, to keep me obeying. You understand? Authority and relationships begin with submission. And so it's so necessary. And when that doesn't take place, when children rebel against their parents, it breaks up the relationship of a family in the way it ought to run. Children, I'm glad that you're getting A's and B's on your report cards. That's very good. But the things you're being graded on are so inferior to what it takes to be a mother and a father. Try, try hard to realize that. That the little bit of information that some teacher gives you and expects you to regurgitate and to put back in a test is nothing compared to being a parent and running a household, and managing a budget, and taking care of you, and trying to keep everyone happy. Selfishness is the greatest curse of relationships. Another rule. Most every single problem in relationships can be traced back to selfishness on one or both parties in a relationship. How can one of us, saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be selfish? We should be the most giving people on earth. Giving. We are to think upon the things of others and not upon our own things. We're to let, let the mind of Christ be in you. Who though in position he was equal to God, humbled himself to the death of the cross. And that kind of a servant's attitude is what ought to characterize us. Selfishness is the greatest cause of problems. Loving others as much as we love ourselves already is the greatest cure for relational problems. The only thing holding you back from happiness in most cases, and truly in all cases, if you're thinking in a spiritual, from a spiritual perspective, is your pride and selfishness. Even if your spouse is not doing for you what the Bible tells them to, you, by putting Jesus Christ first in your life and doing toward them what you ought to be doing, can find a great measure of happiness without the spouse treating you the way that the Bible tells them to. Selfishness says, if they would treat me better, I'd treat them better. That is not Christian thinking. That's devilish thinking. That's selfish thinking. Selfishness sits there and hears me speaking and says, look, there's some neat marriage ideas. Now my husband can love me. Why are you thinking that way? Why aren't you thinking, wife, about how you can love your husband better? That's where God wants all of your thoughts. None of them towards your husband. You are not your husband's conscience, his judge, or his executioner. You're his wife. So the verses that apply to you are addressed to wives, and they tell you to submit. Giving is more important than receiving. Jesus said it. Do we believe it? It's those few red words in the book of Acts. It's in chapter 20, and it's verse 35, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus taught it. Paul repeated it, because that's what he had done toward the elders at Ephesus. But if I'm giving all the time, when will I get? Ever thought that? Have you ever heard that? See, I get to hear them sometimes. Now, most of you, because I'm so ferocious in the pulpit, you, you've given up ever saying things like that to me. Like, if I give all the time, when will I get? Well, help me figure that deep one out. First of all, Jesus Christ said that giving is better than receiving. Right. Did he mean that, or was he confused? Was he philosophically twisted? <laughs> no. That if you give, you're not really getting, and you're really... Suffering because you're giving. He said it's more blessed to give than to receive. There is a blessing in giving to someone. The easiest way to fall in love with your spouse a little bit more than yesterday is to do something for them today. You would tell me, no, it's if they did something for me today. Wrong. You're wrong. That's selfishness and it will never lead to a better marriage. It's going and investing in that person a little bit more and it will stir and kindle in you 
the feelings that you used to have. The Lord would say this about our relationship with Him. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Remember what our relationship used to be like and where it is now. Remember from whence thou art fallen. Repent and do the first works. Go back and do some of those first thoughtful things you did toward someone and it will kindle thoughts in you toward them. You say, well, giving just sounds like too much. I want... I want them to hear this message and them to do something about it. I want them to do some giving toward me. Then I'll be an excited spouse. That isn't how the Lord addresses us. When he says, wives, if your husbands aren't loving you, then you don't need to submit. He never writes that way. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. If both sides are waiting to get more, what happens in a relationship? Ever been in, this sounds like a couple's retreat for a moment, but have you ever been in bed with your spouse? You know that there's something between you. The spouse knows that there's something between you. Well, they should know what, they should know what's bothering me. They should just roll over. We could get this straightened out and we could be happy again. That's what one spouse is thinking. But what's the other spouse thinking? The same thing. So the two lie there in the dark, fulfilling all their dreams and fantasies at the same address, no parents, no chaperones, the same bed, sheets, thin pajamas. They're fulfilling every desire they've had, but they're waiting for the other to do something instead of giving. Where is that taught in the Bible? To wait on someone else. The Bible tells us, that we ought to be the first in giving and we ought to love giving. And the golden rule is to treat others the way we would desire to be treated first. Right. You follow what I mean by the word first? We, we initiate that cycle by treating others first. We initiate it by treating others the way we would like to be treated. If each couple is waiting for the other spouse to do something better, nothing's ever going to improve. Your marriage is going to tank because you're going to get bitter over that spouse not doing for you what you want them to do. But you can start some things by doing for them. Giving is more important than receiving. Priority means to do it now. Is there any priority on this? Let me go over it again. I think it was, was it four? Was it four items I started out with? Was it Malachi 2, Malachi 4, Luke 1, and 1 Peter 3? Were those the four things I started out with? That God sees tears on his altar? from an unhappy spouse, that God will bring a curse when families aren't united, and that a people prepared for the Lord have their families drawn together, and that a husband who doesn't take care of his wife knowledgeably and correctly, his prayers will be hindered. Yes. So there's a priority. And this is what's weighing on me the most. It's the priority. It's not giving you cute little helps. It's asking God to convict you and to convict me that we will walk out of this place and we will give more than we gave yesterday. And we will be less selfish tomorrow than we were today. Because we will try to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. How much did he give? He sat, what did I hear? Everything. Was he rich? He became poor to make us who were poor, rich, unbelievable, giving. Do you know what the Apostle Paul could say because he was the most like Christ in the New Testament? I am willing to spend. Now listen. I am willing to spend and be spent for you. Though the more I love you, the less I be loved. You say that's sadomasochism. Why does he love so much pain? Who was the happiest man in the New Testament? So that when he had his back beaten raw by a Roman scourge, and he had his clothes ripped off in public, and he was hauled down into the innermost prison and chained up down there, he was singing praises at midnight. Does that sound like a man in a depression? Because nobody was loving him? That's 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Does it speak to anyone? I am willing to spend... And be spent. That means everything I've got poured out on the table. You can step on it if you want to. And he says the Corinthians did. Though the more I love you, the less I be loved. That's what everyone's fear is. If I lay myself out the way that you teach, somebody could walk all over me and hurt my feelings. 
Well, you walked all over the Lord Jesus Christ and drove nails through his hands and tore away every friend and support that he had in this world. And God turned away from him because of your sins. He gave everything for you. He did not come to be ministered unto, although he was a king. He came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. If I hang myself out, out, out there like that, I'll just disappear into oblivion. People will just take advantage of me. You're forgetting something. God created you, and God set the rules, and God will protect you. This applies to every relationship. If we support our government, God will support us and take care of us. We will not cross a line of defying our government until they cross a line against God's word. When you go and work for someone, you are to obey them in all fear. Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 6 right here tells us about our duties on the job. Will a boss take advantage of you? Oh, temporarily he may. You should get excited when a boss takes advantage of you. Because 1 Peter 2 tells us, until a boss takes advantage of you, you can't do anything that truly pleases God. If you have a good and gentle boss, submission is a vacation. It's when you have a forward boss and you submit to him, that is pleasing in God's sight. Then this comes into play. You have a master in heaven that is over your master on earth. And there is a master in heaven that will make sure you get your payday. You say, well, it might not be in this life. And that's supposed to overthrow this argument? What is the payday like in the next life? Well, eternal life. Why are you talking that way, you scorner? Why would you talk that way about eternal life? Do you know what you're going to receive as a paycheck, brother? The reward of the inheritance. Do you think it's bigger than the one your earthly father has for you? I'm speaking to all of you. Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children... Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Do we need to go to the Greek to help you understand those words? (laughs) Children, you have a verse in the Bible written to you. I'm a child. Now, my father doesn't tell me to do things very often anymore. But you know, I'm 53. My father's wise enough to know that Genesis 2.24 told me to leave father and mother and cleave unto my, my, to cleave unto my wife, and therefore I'm a new family unit. So he doesn't intrude very often. But if my... I don't want to give you some example because you'll be writing me. But if my father... I don't mean that disrespectfully either. If my father told me to do something, I hope before God I would do it. I would also hope before God that my father recognizes that I have my own family. And between the two of us, we get along just fine that way, but I'm still his child. And I would hope that if he saw something going on in my family that was displeasing to him because he knew it was displeasing to the Lord, that if he came to me, that would be all I would need to get me pushed over the edge of not doing it any longer. Right. I don't want verse 1 very much. I want the next two. But I want children, obey your parents in the Lord. That doesn't mean your parents have to be Christians for you to obey them. That prepositional phrase, in the Lord, is what obeying parents is. It is a Christian duty of yours to obey your parents. And then the Lord wants to tell you, for this is right. This is a right, good thing. This is necessary for society to function. What's the first relationship that we meet with in life? Children to parents. Everything else flows out of that. The first one, we meet these two people. We got a job that we didn't even apply for. You didn't even fill out a resume to get the two sitting to your right. But you're given those parents. And so there you, you wake up one day. Oh, that great big guy is my daddy. And this little woman's my mommy. And the Lord made it that way. And then he says, children, Anna, I don't, Victoria, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Is that a simple verse? Everything works when children do that. It makes the family function. Now, there's verses to to daddy. And there's verses to mommy. And I think I said some things to daddy and mommy last week, didn't I? 
was I so ferocious in this pulpit that I pulled it from our website because I didn't want anyone to misunderstand me? But I'm not going to back off one bit. I'm not going to preach any less than Elijah or John the Baptist would about this matter. Fathers have their verses, and children have their verses. And children don't need to worry about fathers' verses, but fathers have to worry a little bit about children's verses. That's the way God made it. Look at this. Verses 2 and 3. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Praise the Lord! Thank the God of heaven for giving me a verse that tells me about longevity. It tells me how to add years to my life. It tells me to honor my father and my mother. What does honor mean? We have a verb in verse 1 that's obey. We have a verb in verse 2 that's honor. Honor is very different from obey. Obey is you're given a command, go do it. That's right. Verses 2 and 3 are to treat your parents specially as objects of your affection and your esteem. It's to go out of your way to do things to make them happy. It's not them giving you a commandment and you doing it. Honoring your father and mother is to lift them up. It's to treat them special. It's to think about them. What would they like? What would they like? I am going to flush what I would like to give them what they would like. And when a person does that, flushes what they would like to give their parents what they would like, God says, I've attached the first promise in the Word of God to any one of my commandments. That if you children will do that, whether you're a young child or an older child, but you will treat your parents special. And you will show affection and esteem and respect and love and devotion and kindness and generosity... I'll give you a long life and it'll go well with you. You're going to get hired for a better position than you thought you deserved. You're going to get a promotion faster than you thought you would get it. You're going to get a better spouse. You're going to have better children. I am going to breathe and bless and blow on your life to make it better because you're honoring your parents. Now, what if you don't do that? Well, the Bible says that if you roll your eye at your parents, it's a capital crime. The Bible says your lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. God will blow against you. And when God blows against you, it is unbelievable how many things can go wrong. Whose verse is it? This is one of the rules of relationships. Because we come to verse 4. I'm not done with verses 2 and 3. Honor thy father and mother. Who picked them for you? God did. What have you done recently to make them feel very special? I went and told them I needed something. No, that isn't really what I had in mind about making them feel special. They like to be there when you're in trouble. But what have you done to make them feel special? What have you spent for them? Do you know what they've done their whole lives? Spend, spend, and spend, and spend some more for you. What have you spent for them? You say, well, I just don't have enough time. Well, they didn't have time in bed either. For the first three years of your life or the first six months of your life, when your mother had to get up every few hours because you were whining because you had had six meals that day, but you wanted number seven. Why did mommy have to get you get up and get you meal number seven in the middle of the night? You disrupted her schedule. Now it's time for you to... Interrupt your schedule for her. Where does the Bible say that? It says it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that we should requite our parents for what they have done for us. The word requite means to repay. What a promise. And he wants you to know, this is so important to me, that it's the first commandment I put a bonus with. Now, you know, we shouldn't need a promise with a commandment, should we? It should just say, honor thy father and thy mother. Period. That God wants to give you extra incentive in his infinite wisdom. It's not just a threat. It's not just a commandment. It's an offer of his blessing. That's how important it is to God. Lest he smite the earth with a curse for a people prepared for the Lord. 
When was the last time you gave a, a secret surprise gift to your parents? Just because you wanted to. They said, it wasn't my birthday. What would you get this thing for me? You don't have the money for... Listen, you're my parents. I've always got the money for you. There's nurses and paramedics in this audience that you can call after you say that to your parents because your parents would need it. Why don't you think that way? Why are you thinking selfishly instead of generously, instead of the honor that's described here? But verse 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. In Colossians, the version is, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. Provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Now that verse is for your parents. Children, that verse is not for you. A child cannot run into Ephesians 6.4 or Colossians 3.21 and say, Well, my fathers discouraged me. My fathers provoked me to anger, so now I'm discouraged and I'm not going to obey or honor him. That verse isn't for you at all. You don't even need to know it's in the Bible until you're a father. It's not for you. It's not an excuse for you to say, Well, my father has provoked me to anger and he's caused me to be discouraged. If your father is doing things to provoke you to anger, you have the wonderful, God-given, God-chosen, blessed opportunity to be a real child. Because you can't be a real child with a good and gentle father. A real child is a real employee or a real servant like 1 Peter 2 that will submit and endure grief. Listen to the words. These are not mine. These are God the Holy Spirit's. Endure grief, suffering wrongfully. That is a good child. That is a good employee. That is a good wife. And when God in heaven who manages all the authority relationships in the entire universe. When he sees you doing something, 1 Peter 2 says it is thankworthy. When he sees you submitting out of conscience toward God to authority that is abusing its office. Whether a father is obeying Ephesians 6-4 or not doesn't alter the child's responsibility to obey verses 1-3. through Whether children are keeping... Ephesians 6, 1 through 3 or not, doesn't alter a father's responsibility to bring his children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in verse 4. It's a common error of Christians to excuse themselves from their duty by the dereliction of others. Nowhere is that taught in the Bible. So one of my rules for you in relationships is, whose verse is it? Any child brings Ephesians 6, 4 or Colossians 3, 21 to me, I'm going to tell you right now what I'm going to do. I'm going to laugh at you. You say you're too hard. I'm going to laugh at you. When 911 is called and picks you up and takes you to the hospital and you're hanging on life support, then I'll think about it. But when you want to come and whine to me by taking a verse like Colossians 3.21 to justify your rebellion, sorry, it doesn't cut it anywhere in God's word. There is no perfect authority. All authority is imperfect and it always has been in all five spheres throughout the history of the world and it always will be. That verse is not for you. That verse is for your father. And I will pound your father with that verse, but you will not. That verse is not for you to pound your father. It is for me to pound your father because God gave me an office over your father to teach him Colossians 3.21. Your verses are Colossians 3.20. And Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Wives can't use Ephesians 5, 25 through 29 and say, My husband doesn't love me like this, so I'm not going to submit to him the way verses 22 through 24 describe me submitting. That's the wrong use of the Bible. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, since I've referred to it about four times. I want you to see it. Just a few more minutes. Forwardness creates opportunity, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Well, pastor is a good and gentle boss a blessing. Of course it is. It's a different kind of a blessing. But is a forward boss a blessing? Yes, it's a different kind of a blessing. I'm not trying to confuse different kinds of blessings. Can the Lord make even your enemies to be at peace with you if he chooses to? Easily. 
Could, can, can the Lord make you run into good and gentle masters your entire life? He can easily do that. But how would then you, how would you then show him how much you love him? How would you then show him the character of your conscience? Here it is. This is a passage I never want you to forget, and yes, I know I repeat it often. It answers so many dilemmas that I hear from those I know well and from those that contact us through our website. Servants, in verse 18 of 1 Peter 2, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. This is how you show your Christ-like character, is when you have a froward boss that mistreats you, so that you have to endure him, you have to endure grief, and you suffer, and you suffer wrongfully, because you're being mistreated. This is the word of the Lord in all relationships. And guess what? To some extent... Every single position of authority is forward because it's not perfect except one in heaven. The point is forwardness creates opportunity. A forward boss or a husband or a father does not excuse insubordination from servants. Jesus Christ is the greatest example. And what a wonderful example he gave us. Look at Psalm 37. One final point. What's the most important thing we should walk away with? I know my office. I know God designed the office and God put the person in the office to whom I relate. The pastor has reminded me about Malachi 2 and tears, Malachi 4 and a curse, Luke 1 and being prepared for the Lord, and 1 Peter 3 and prayers being hindered. I got the message. Relationships are important. I have been selfish. I am lazy. I have excused my lack of diligence because my the, the other party in the relationship isn't doing their part. Lord, forgive me. Let me go out of this place convicted and committed to do a better job at fulfilling my role in my offices that God's given me regardless of what anyone else does. Then we are bearing fruit to God and married to Jesus Christ. Because I just showed you in 1 Peter chapter 2 about the Lord Jesus Christ gave us an example of doing that very thing. He endured grief, suffering wrongfully. The, Isaiah 53 says that he was cut off, but not for his transgressions. Right. He was cut off for yours. And he gave us that example and we are to follow that example. That is why God's children in the history of the world have been, in most cases, the humblest, modest, faithful, submissive employees and citizens of nations. Pliny the Elder once wrote about the Christians in the Roman Empire, that they were the best subjects that the Caesar had, and that when he had those that hated Jesus Christ and Christianity telling him about the threat of Christians to the empire, he was to disregard them because Christians had always been the best of employees. Because even though Caesar stood against their God, and even though Caesar had killed some of their apostles and prophets, and even though Caesar worshipped himself or worshipped idols made from men's hands, Christians still submitted. Because the religion of those in authority over us civilly does not matter. We still obey. We still submit. And the Lord's given us the opportunity to prove our mettle. That's M-E-T-T-L-E in the present generation. The last point I want to give you is Psalm 37, 37. It's primarily to parents and husbands and pastors. 
37, 37, Mark the perfect man. Behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. The point I want to make here is very simple. Example speaks the loudest. You can't, you can't teach your children to do something that you're not doing and have it take root in their lives unless God does a miracle. Your example speaks the loudest. Parents who tell their children to honor them while compromising in any area commit a fatal failure. And you as parents can never let that happen. We all know the simple folly of do as I say, not as I do. We know that that's folly. Children learn early to hate such things. Children at a young age become very proficient psychologists and are able to psychoanalyze you and your spouse and figure out just how happy you are with each other, how thoroughly you take care of each other, and how much you love the Lord. They're able to figure that out very fast and make a, and make a, a rather logical decision. Is Christianity worth it? So the example you show them carries more weight than what you tell them. The example you show them carries more weight than I can ever exude from this pulpit. It is your example. How happy and cheerful are you in serving the Lord? The Bible sets forth men to be examples to us. In Philippians 3, Paul said, Mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. Paul said, find the men in the church at Philippi that live like me and follow them. Because an example is a wonderful thing to have. Paul told Timothy, be thou an example of the believer. And he listed a number of things. If you have an unhappy marriage, and when I say unhappy marriage, some of you will excuse yourselves and say, well, compared to most people, I have a pretty happy marriage. That isn't the measure. The measure is what does God expect you to have with your spouse. And if it is not what God has required of you to have with your spouse, it's not good enough. And your little psychologist that you chose to bring into this world will psychoanalyze you and figure out that your religion is false. And they won't want a part of it. So God help us to be good examples throughout the church. Grandparents, parents, pastor, husbands, let's be a godly example and let others see it and let our families see it and let them know that it is consistent, it is sincere, it is full of zeal, it is satisfying because you're satisfied, because you're happy, because you're content. Let those things rule. Let there be no complaining in our streets. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word to relationships that please Him and bear fruit unto God.